everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Pepperdine Law Professor Jeff Baker from the Caruso School of Law. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much, David. Good to be with you. Um, so just to start, uh, maybe Tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at Pepperdine. Sure, happy to. Uh, I Pretty soon in this conversation, you will probably start to hear the vestiges of my Southern accent or my Southern accent outright. Uh, I am from uh, the Deep South. I was born in Alabama, grew up in Mississippi. Um, and as a Southerner, I can't answer a question without starting uh, way at the beginning. So uh, I'll try not to do that too much. But I grew up in, in the Deep South. I went to uh, Harding University in Arkansas and uh, Vanderbilt uh, for law school in Nashville. Um, and as many people from Mississippi, when they leave, I, I shook my fist at the sky and said I was never coming back. Um, and then I did. Uh, so my f- uh, first year in, in, in practice, my first several years in law practice were in private law firm practice in Mississippi. And I matured a lot uh, from my young angst and grew to love again my home state of Mississippi um, in all of its uh, complexities. And uh, But I felt a real calling to teach. And my first uh, break in law teaching, moving out of practice, was in Montgomery, Alabama uh, at Faulkner University Jones School of Law uh, in Montgomery, where I... Uh, came into clinical teaching and uh, that is that is the that is the heart of my work as a law professor I'm a clinical law professor that means I practice law with students I teach through practice so uh, since 2006 I've had an ongoing uh, clinical law practice uh, teaching students through practice um, and at Faulkner I ran a uh, clinic called the family violence clinic uh, for seven years and represented uh, with my students, probably about 400 or so clients who were victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. And our principal practice in that uh, work was to help our clients get civil protection orders um, and other sort of civil remedies um, as they were trying to escape uh, and and become re-empowered after being in abusive relationships for years. That opportunity led to more opportunities. And in 2013, my family and I moved uh, to California. Uh, we have the pleasure, the rich privilege of living on campus uh, at in faculty housing at Pepperdine in Malibu. So Montgomery to Malibu is a, is a fairly jarring transition. Uh, and since 2013, uh, I've been here at Pepperdine, Caruso School of Law, uh, became a member of the California Bar 
shortly thereafter, my third bar exam, uh, which is a real commitment to this work, and uh, and have uh, been here since then. And the clinics that I run here at uh, Pepperdine have been a different kind of practice. I, I direct the Community Justice Clinic, um, and the Community Justice Clinic represents nonprofits, NGOs, community organizations who are devoted to human rights, social justice, community economic development, human dignity in, in many forms uh, in LA, throughout California and and abroad. I'm like the, I'm the director of the clinical pro- program. Uh, we have 10 clinics this year. Uh, the other brilliant clinical faculty are like my law partners. The students are like our uh, associates and we are uh, in the business of reaching out and providing pro bono public interest law uh, legal services for our clients and teaching students how to be ethical, excellent lawyers, we hope. Uh, so that's the work I do here. Among other things, uh, I, I'm an assistant dean. Uh, I think my title currently is assistant dean of clinical education and global programs and several other things. Uh, but the heart of my work is, is clinical education and the heart of that work here is the community justice clinic for me. So out of curiosity, I mean, what is it well, what's the difference between Alabama, Mississippi, and Malibu, California? That's a that's a complex question, and I have uh, many, many thoughts. Um, but one thing that I've learned uh, is that every place has its beauty and its horror, and every place has its its progress and its regress and its glory and its shame. And, uh, and I think the key is looking to find the, the truth and the promise of redemption in many places. Uh, and I think I came to California, uh, as many people do when they leave the South, uh, with a little bit of my own trauma and a little bit of my own angst and looking for the optimistic California dream. Uh, and this was during the Obama era, and I think there was a sense of like um, the sun peeking over the horizon, and 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 you know it's been an extraordinary experience. We love it. We have dear friends here. We have dear friends back home too. But what I have come to learn is um, California has its issues too, and by recognizing California's issues, I actually grow in deeper understanding of the the issues at home in Mississippi and Alabama. Now, I'll put a little bit more specificity on that for you. Um, Mississippi and Alabama, uh, the Deep South generally, is um, complex in a way that it is uh, ha- has has the has the true dark, dark, violent stain of injustice and racism and white supremacy um, that is rooted in slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and and all of those things. Um, it is also extraordinarily hospitable and friendly and loving and creative and and redemptive uh, in so many, many ways. And uh, and sometimes I think it's a little bit more honest with itself than California is. Um, California, I live in Los Angeles County. It's the largest county in the country. It's, it's wildly diverse, 180 languages spoken in this county alone. Uh, you know, just a, a huge population of people who are immigrants internally and externally. Um, and it still suffers with, a, with the vestiges of, of its own form of segregation, its own form of discrimination and uh, ghettoization and minoritization. And, uh, and, and it has to reckon with those, I think, with a, with a different kind of uh, lens. So, I don't know. 
<laughs> That's the answer. I don't know. Where humanity's a big old mess, and uh, and I love the South, and I love California, um, and what I've come to learn is that there is nothing new under the sun, uh, and we have to. It's all rooted in loving our neighbors and and trying to trying to make it right in our in our own context. I think that's important context, um, you know, trying to understand the background there. But uh, so so tell us a bit more about the Community Justice Clinic and how that operates. Sure. So uh, in general, our clinics are, are courses that upper level law students take. So second and third year law students take clinics in order to advance their experiential education and their learning. So the Community Justice Clinic works like that. Students uh, enroll in the class. Uh, and we have an active law practice. I'm the supervising attorney and teacher uh, and supervise our students in, in the practice for our clients. And each of our clinics has a different clientele, a different focus, and a different kind of practice. We have trial practice, we've got appellate practice, mediation practice, lots of practices. Uh, my, my clinic, the Community Justice Clinic, uh, is essentially general counsel for nonprofits, uh, international non-governmental organizations, community organizations, churches, synagogues, uh, unincorporated organizations who are at work among vulnerable and marginalized communities. Um, and we have basically three threads of practice. Uh, we do everything up to litigation. We don't litigate. I'm a, I'm a born litigator in the first 13, 14 years of my, of my professional life were litigation. Uh, but this clinic, uh, we provide corporate and governance uh, counsel and services to our clients to help them incorporate, to make sure that they are compliant, to make sure that they have good, sustainable, solid, compliant uh, organizations so that they can do their work well and sustainably. That's the first thread. The second thread is uh, just general legal services, uh, often transactional, uh, sometimes IP. Uh, we help people with, uh, with leases, with contracts, with compliance, with personnel policies, with, uh, with trademarks and that sort of thing so that they can build their uh, the, build their work uh, in sustainable and creative ways, um, especially when they're negotiating with their neighbors and, and handling business to make sure that they can do it well. And then our third focus is uh, legal research and policy work uh, to advance our clients' work in the world. So uh, for instance, we have had a client uh, and this client is called Justice Revival. Um, and Justice Revival is a DC-based uh, nonprofit that is advancing human rights in the United States, especially in church communities. And our client asked us to evaluate um, uh, the, the Trump era immigration policies, especially early on, 2017, 2018, uh, with family separation and child detention through the lens of human rights uh, laws, international human rights laws, treaties and norms. And so uh, we took that on and did several semesters work of analysis uh, and that generated a work product for our client. Uh, and then that client and I actually were able to, uh, the, the executive director of that organization, uh, Ali McKinney-Tim and I were able to actually convert that research into a law review article. Um, we're currently doing work uh, with a, uh, an NGO uh, who has a lot of uh, presence with local civil society organizations uh, in South Asia and Southeast Asia. Uh, and we've done a project like this in India. We're currently doing a project like this in the Philippines, uh, which is helping the civil society organizations on the ground have a good um, 
a good working portfolio of all the uh, entitlements and civil rights uh, that people who are especially poor in those countries um, so that they can understand what all of their uh, resources are so that they can have access to the things that they can do to thrive. So um, if our clients give us an assignment and if it's in our zone of competence, uh, we will research for them. So essentially our job is to empower those people, those organizations who are doing the work of empowering people um, who are disenfranchised uh, in their own communities. And and since you brought up the um, research on Trump era immigration, uh, I mean, what was your main finding in that? Well, try, you know, trying to be good lawyers, uh, we tried to be relatively focused. And the question really was, um, does family separation and child detention at the border uh, violate any uh, international human rights laws? Um, and our answer was yes, uh, it does quite clearly. Uh, and international law itself is an amorphous, that's a whole nother conversation, like does international law even exist? I mean, there's customary international law, which may or may not actually exist. Um, and then there's also treaty-based laws. And so we try to focus on the things that are you know, operable treaties um, that, that bind the U.S. either to which we are signatories or have actually ratified. And, and we did. I, I feel like the United States government um, very clearly violated some of our um, obligations under international law uh, with those specific uh, tactics of separating families at the border without process and the prolonged detention of uh, children separated from their families. Um, th those violated domestic law too. That, that's fairly clear uh, based on court orders and even by the Trump administration's own abandoning those practices when it came under scrutiny. Um, but, but our finding was that yes, uh, it violated international law. And so what's the implication of that? I, I mean, you, you went on and published this um, Toward what end? <laughs> uh, I, I laugh because we had this conversation with ourselves uh, because uh, everything I just said is, I believe, is true, and there is almost no remedy for it. Um, and this is one of the you know great complications of international law, which we are seeing actually play out this week uh, with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, is that international law is an interesting abstraction and uh, and is uh, almost, it is it is almost entirely unenforceable, especially against the United States. I mean, the United States has been very careful not to surrender any sovereignty under most of the treaties that we sign, especially around human rights. So, um, so there's very little to do. Uh, so, what we hoped to do, uh, and what we actually called for in the paper, uh, is to at least bear witness to it, um, and at least document um, that there were folks, many, many folks, um, who were uh, standing astride this and, and calling it out and bearing witness and making a record. And also, uh, we called for uh, n not anything that, say, the UN or any international court could do, but to try to contribute our voices to the democratic uh internal domestic political conversation like to speak to and this is this is ultimately our, our our conclusion is that the answer can only ever really be politics um in the united states and i don't mean partisan politics i mean like the body politic demanding something better like a, a true democratic response that says this violates our norms 
It violates our moral conscience. It violates our communal consensus, and we cannot stand for it. And, and you know, I, I have to say, I, I think that's actually what happened. Uh, I, I think that there, I mean, Trump era is complicated in lots of ways, uh, but but when the scrutiny arose, um, courts and and politicians and people and activists and ultimately the Justice Department and everything stopped it. So, I mean, it, it, I, I think that that bears out the thesis uh, that, that there, there are some things that are beyond the pale uh, for us, and that was one. Uh, so, so that's my hope. And, and what role do the students play in, in these clinics, and what role do they play in this work? Well, so uh, in the best practices of clinical education, as a theory, the students ought to play most of the role. Uh, we, we, we adopt and we try to implement uh, the idea of non-directive pedagogy, uh, where we are not just telling the students what to do, but that we are equipping them to understand the process and the component parts of what lawyers do so that then they can do the work. So my, my pedagogical philosophy is to, is to set really high expectations, to equip the students uh, to reach those expectations, and then to trust them to reach them. Now, we don't want to commit malpractice. Uh, and so we do monitor that, th- those, that, their work. We do multiple iterations of work with them. Uh, we rely a lot on reflective pedagogy. Uh, so we're, we're asking them to think about what they're doing all the time and giving them feedback on it. So the, the idea of, of good clinical education is to empower students to do the work so that they understand what it feels like to be a lawyer, not just to think like a lawyer. And so uh, in this regard, um, I step back uh, almost always uh, during the semester and the students have the, the one-on-one direct conversation with clients. They're not just doing assignments that I assign them. They're having client discussions. Uh, They're meeting with their clients to assess goals, to assess uh, mechanisms of, of work. And then the students are doing that work um, under uh, with me in the background. Um, and then they're actually representing the, the clients. So the clients during a semester, I hope, almost never see me. Uh, they almost always see the students. So in a case like this, uh, our client came to us. Our students met with them uh, and their leadership and uh, and took on the role and then did the research over multiple semesters um, and then collated that and reported it back uh, to the client. Um, and then we, we took it another step. So. Um, for instance, uh, you know, I, I have a I have a student right now. Uh, in fact, moments before this podcast, uh, w- I was talking to this student uh, in our office, and he is helping one of our um, clients who got a uh, surprise bill and assessment from a California agency, and we think that was a mistake. Uh, and so I have not. I've been in the background on this, but our client has been talking to the student, and the student's been preparing an appeal. And the student will um, help the client file that and then hopefully get relief from that agency so that our client can get on with their good work, um, which in this case is providing access to education and after school uh, work and mentorship for um, LAUSD students in some under resourced neighborhoods. Um, and you mentioned you'd previously done work on domestic violence uh, cases. Was that primarily in Alabama or was that here as well? My work on that was primarily in Alabama uh, at Faulkner Law School in Montgomery. Um, but uh, we did um, 
soon after I came here, we were able to start a, a similar clinic here. Uh, and my colleague, Professor Tanya Cooper, uh, runs our Restoration and Justice Clinic. And it fits into our, you know, 10 clinic curriculum uh, to provide that kind of work. Um, that work for me was, um, was a surprise and something that um, transformed my entire life. I, I did not set out to do that work. Uh, when I got the job at Faulkner and was able to leave and start teaching, that was the clinic I inherited. Uh, I had every intention of, of shutting it down and doing something that I thought I wanted to do. Um, uh, and after a semester or two, um, that work dug down so deep into my heart and mind uh, and I recognized the gravity and importance of it that I that I couldn't let it go. So it, it was my it was my focus principal po focus for seven years or so in Montgomery. And that clinic continues now. Uh, Professor Kelly McTeer at Faulkner continues to run it, and uh, it was extraordinary in the sense that I, uh, the clients and the practice taught me more than I ever understood I needed to know about. Um, systemic injustice, about social uh, powers and cultural forces that disenfranchise and disempower people, um, what it means to be empowered, um, how to pull up alongside a client instead of just trying to rescue a client, um, trying to dispose of our sort of savior complex as lawyers and to really uh, to really um, collaborate alongside a client so that she can find her own voice and power. And then um, to reckon with uh, all of the sort of social stigmas that, that come from that philosophy, come from that phenomenon, and uh, and then recognize how that translates to justice work everywhere. Uh, so that same idea of client-centeredness, of learning a client's story, of trying to empower that client to take care of their own business. Uh, informs what we do in clinics uh, from Skid Row um, to to our business clinics to everything that we do uh, gets infused with that idea of training lawyers not to just be mercenaries for our clients but to actually uh, equip and empower them um, in whatever context they are. And what is the state of like domestic violence work in Alabama? I you know and there might this might be just stereotypical of me but i know you know if you get into rural areas in california it's almost like you're in the dark ages on domestic violence issues i i will say that i do not believe that california is any better at this than alabama and mississippi um uh, i think it's an endemic uh and 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 vast problem. Uh, I mean, we know that the numbers are actually just staggering. And the same forces that sort of drive intimate partner violence, dating violence, domestic violence, and abuse are, um, are common uh, throughout the world uh, and throughout the United States in many ways. So the manifestations of, of, of practice are, are very, very clear. In fact, uh, in Davis, I should mention, since this is the Davis Vanguard, uh, my dear friend Kelly Berry runs the domestic violence clinic at UC Davis Law School. And she came to Davis from Alabama, uh, where I first met her too. So, uh, you know, and, and Professor Cooper, who runs ours, also came here from Alabama. Uh, and we have all three experienced both context and, and, and see the commonalities all over the place. But let me speak a positive word about Alabama. 
because um, in Montgomery, um, I had the incredible privilege of being a part of a true collaborative coordinated community response to uh, domestic violence that evolved over time from uh, a few people having breakfast 15 or 20 years ago who did this work in Montgomery, which which developed into a formal task force on domestic violence, which continued monthly meetings for like another decade, which then gave rise to something called the One Place Family Justice Center. Um, which was inspired by a San Diego program called the Family Justice Center. But in Montgomery, um, we recognized, and this is really uh, with a, a visionary police officer named Steve Searcy and, and a visionary shelter professional named Karen Sellers and her team, um, we really drove uh, this project in order to have one-stop shopping for domestic violence victims. And this is true in California, it's true in Mississippi and Alabama, that often people who are going through these kinds of traumas have to just go on a scavenger hunt to find resources. Uh, if they don't want to go to the police, they don't know where to go. If they want a lawyer, they don't know where to go. They go here and there, they go to a shelter, but then they have to go to XYZ places. And because we all knew each other and because we had really developed uh, really trusting relationships for a long time, when we all moved in together, uh, it became a successful venture, public private investment uh, into a nonprofit on public property where civil lawyers, prosecutors, police, nurses, uh, shelter professionals, um, just a, a ton of good folks uh, came together in order to provide comprehensive services uh, to our clients as they had need. And, uh, and it was actually pretty exciting. Uh, and I think it's actually a nation leading model. So in Montgomery, at least, um, actually literally some cutting edge stuff. And I actually haven't seen it done as well uh, in California in my experience so far. You've also done some work on the school to prison pipeline. And, you know, it's one of these things um, where a lot of my readers uh, push back and go, well, school to prison pipeline is, is kind of this progressive uh, fairy tale uh, or concoction. I mean, what's your take on that? So my work in this uh, is less direct, perhaps, than a lot of folks. But I have, but I, but I have some insight from from my clients and from from work that other sorts of projects that we've done in the law school. Um, I think I would, I think I would widen that lens just a little bit and say that um, what 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 I think you mean by the school to prison pipeline is is a is an example and is an articulation of the phenomenon that we are extremely reactive in the criminal justice system and less proactive. I think we are not investing um, in the things that we know will uh, reduce crime and empower people and, and, and result in better outcomes like public education, like uh, um, universal health care, like mental health awareness, like trauma-informed responses, uh, like support for families who are in poverty. Um, and we, we ought to be investing there more than just investing on the, uh, the hard edge of um, carceral law enforcement uh, and, and prisons. Um, I, the, the notion that there is a school-to-prison pipeline, I think, is... Uh, 
is not intentional, but is inescapable. Like, I don't think anyone sits down, well, maybe there are some people, some, some evil folks out in the world who are like, I'm going to make sure this kid goes to prison someday. But what I think we see is that uh, under-resourced schools, under-resourced families, um, a lack of public investment in the things like public libraries and food and housing and healthcare end up driving uh, desperation and trauma, and trauma informs uh, really bad outcomes, and then ultimately um, end up as grist in the criminal justice system, which at this point in our history has very few examples of actually therapeutic, redemptive correction, and is almost all about grinding, punitive, retributive cruelty. So, so that, so, so I don't think it's a myth. I think the school to prison pipeline is shorthand for our failure as a people to invest where we ought to invest, um, and then over investing in retribution. I think you put that really well. Um, and you know, it's kind of interesting. I, uh, got a chance a couple of weeks ago to interview Professor Henning from uh, Georgetown Law, and she had just written a book about the criminalization of black youth. And one of the points that she made is to what extent like normal adolescent behavior at a school gets criminalized. Like, uh, you know, one of the cases in her book, his boyfriend and girlfriend had a fight um, she thought uh, he was cheating on her, so she smacked him, grabs his cell phone, the school resource officer sees this and arrests her for robbery. Um, you know, the, this, this kind of, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, appropriate behavior by the young lady, but, you know, it shouldn't have been a criminal uh, case. And she ends up in the system uh, because of this. That's right, and and it is um, it, it is an active and and hard question. So so right now uh, in Los Angeles, we have uh, our our new district attorney in Los Angeles County, um, George Gascon, uh, is a so called progressive prosecutor, part of that part of that wave of progressive prosecution prosecutors who have been elected around the country. And, and he made a pretty strong stand uh, when he started and said, I, so, so no one who is uh, under 18 will be charged as an adult. We will do the lightest possible sentences. We will try to do all these things. And just last weekend started to backtrack on that as he faces his like second recall election and all these other things because there were some you know, truly egregious cases. But, but I think that what we ought to do is think, uh, think, far more creatively and more humanely and with more imagination than just the binary options uh, that we have uh, provided for ourselves or convinced ourselves are necessary, which is either like jail or nothing. Um, there, are, there are a thousand steps between jail and nothing. Uh, and we can, we can invest in people uh, and we can have a, a goal of, of, of redemption I mean, I'm going to sound like the preacher that I actually am here a little bit. Like we can believe in redemption, um, uh, and and actually and actually put that into policy. It, it, it's possible. I have I have a great example of this. Um, the uh, California has some really good laws, uh, in my opinion, around uh, diversionary sentencing 
and alternative sentencing regimes for veterans. Uh, and uh, there, there are throughout California and every county different versions of veterans treatment court. Uh, the one I'm most familiar with is in Ventura County. Uh, there's a um, uh, some some great lawyers up there in in, in Ventura County, uh, especially in the public defender's office. And then they got the DAs on board and they got the courts on board. And so when California passed these laws, uh, my friend Rod Codman, uh, who's now um, sort of moved on from this work, he was a driving force in Ventura County. And and what what this is is um, uh, a system through which a person who uh, enters into the criminal justice system, they're charged with a crime. Uh, if that person can identify a nexus between their experience in the military, their experience as a veteran with that crime, then they can be diverted into a therapeutic regime uh, that is not just retributive. So for example, uh, a military person, a veteran, suffers uh, military sexual trauma or a traumatic brain injury or PTSD, and, uh, and they do not receive in action, in combat, or in training uh, at, at, through our endless wars of the last 20 years, and they come out and they are uh, broken on behalf of the nation, and the nation has not provided sufficient supports for them. Uh, that person with PTSD uh, might start self-medicating, might start drinking, might get a DUI, might get addicted to opioids, might have a DV case, um, but, it's, but it's reacting to their trauma right? Uh, and the trauma informs the crime, and then the trauma informs the response. And so I have seen these really dynamic meetings of a prosecutor and a defender and a probation officer and a VA officer and a social worker all sitting around to create a customized um, approach for this defendant, like this person who is charged with a crime because they can connect it to their military service. And instead of going to jail, they get occupational therapy, they get drug rehab, they get housing, they get job support, uh, they, they go on probation for a while, and if they, and if they, and if they finish this program, then uh, they graduate instead of being sentenced. Uh, there is an actual ceremony in the courtroom, the judge gives that veteran a challenge coin, congratulates them. And at that point, they have received a lot of care, and then they are not just put into jail. Um, it is beautiful. It is truly redemptive. Uh, it is all right. And sometimes uh, that process includes needing to make uh, restitution, uh, going through restorative justice programs with a victim. Like it's not, it's not silent on the victims, but it is trying to redeem the person who has gone through this process. I think it is extraordinary. I think it is a model for the future. Um, and sort of here's why, uh, because I think that there is true bipartisan, multipartisan, genuine consensus that we need to take care of our veterans, uh, that these people have suffered on behalf of the nation. We ask them to do horrible things. They come back. We need to take care of them. What we're missing, though, I think, is the connection that trauma is trauma is trauma, and that the same neuropsychological, emotional things um, that happen to someone in combat look exactly like the same kind of their uh, trauma that happens to someone who is in a prolonged domestic violence situation, the same kind of trauma that happens to a kid who grows up in a place that is fraught with gang violence uh, and gun violence and drug violence, and that same kind of trauma leads to the same kind of results. And I mean, there's some statistic I saw uh, in my 
domestic violence days that something like 90% of all women who are in the who are incarcerated in our country have a gateway of having been victims of domestic violence at some point in their lives. So that trauma leads to crime uh, or, or the behaviors that we have criminalized, I should say. So when those those behavior so when trauma leads to behavior that we have criminalized, we can either put that person in jail, or we could invest in something that looks like a veterans treatment court, except for the kid who grows up in South LA, or who goes grow, uh, grows up in um, you know uh, other parts of California, or or out in the sticks, and or the people who have um, in a in a rural place are are. Uh, you know, just confronted with the opioid epidemic, all of these things, um, if we treated it as, uh, as a trauma-informed exercise in trying to prevent those people and, and help redeem them, then I think that we would find that that's a really good investment. I think we would also find it's actually cheaper. Um, it takes a lot of personnel on the front end. It's much less efficient than putting someone grinding through a system, but it, it yields better outcomes for less money. Um, than merely putting someone in a, a warehouse. Well, I mean, if you think about it, we're spending probably about the same amount of money uh, to incarcerate uh, a person, lock them in a cage, as we are to educate them for one year at Pepperdine. Um, so- oh, more, 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 <laughs> actually. Uh, and, and, you know, I know that there's a real question about, like, that that we that we sometimes do and want to and it's appropriate to punish someone. I mean, we have to be mindful of, of victims and making sure that we have legitimate concern for public safety. That is true. I just think that this idea is actually more powerful when it comes to public safety and punishment and uh, and contrition and actual correction. Than, uh, than merely expressing our rage at someone and putting them in a box. Yeah, and I mostly, you know, agree with that. Um, you know, the one thing that I, you know, I was reading um, probably yesterday, uh, the article in the LA Times on Gascon and why Gascon kind of backtracked. And, you know, uh, because initially I'm like, well, why, why is he backtracking on this stuff? I understand he's under fire and everything, and and it's political. But if you actually read through and, and kind of dispassionately dissect it, you know, you come to this point, realization that, yeah, okay, I get it. You know, there there really are some cases that aren't appropriate for the juvenile system. My problem has always been, you know, if you open that door even a crack, uh, you know, the traditional prosecutors just push right through. And I, I've sat in court uh, watching the, these 14, 15 year old kids in adult court going, these kids shouldn't be here for this. Right. Uh, and, and it's a tragedy and, and they end up getting sucked into the system and then they can't get out. Uh, but right. there needs to be some kind of flexibility. And right now, the problem with the juvenile system is if you're in the juvenile system, you're getting out at 25 and this this woman, uh, you know, who killed the uh, the kid, she she didn't even get caught till she was 26. So uh, that made it a difficult uh, scenario. And then, you know, there's, um, where I live in Davis, uh, there was um, right down the street from where I lived, uh, you know, about five years ago, there was this 15 year old who who savagely like murdered and tortured this elderly couple and and so he always serves as kind of this poster child for why you can't do uh juvenile uh reform and and so 
you know, you need kind of a flexible enough system that you're not releasing this kid at 26, but you're not keeping other kids in prison for 20 years for something they did when they were 15. Yes, this goes to the this goes to the idea I think that I suggested earlier that that we just have we have just convinced ourselves that there are way fewer options. Uh, we've backed ourselves into binary choices that say it's either juvie, it's either the juvenile justice system or the adult justice system. In, in the grand scheme of the universe, those aren't the only two available options, right? Uh, I mean, we limit our options and, and then put ourselves into a bind. And and I know historically, even with the best gloss, uh, historically that comes from an idea of like, well, we just can't do everything. And a sense of justice, uh, you know, we would talk about this in common law courses in law school, is like we need to treat like cases like. Uh, and so over the course of time, uh, we say, well, this is a case like this, so it, it needs to go in this box. And I think that that, I think what we are learning uh, as a society through science, through through social science, through our own experience, um, is that that's just not necessary. Like like we could have more options. We could have we could have more paths. And we also know, like with some scientific certainty, that our brains are still developing until we're like 25. I mean, that's just a human truth. Uh, and, uh, I mean, that's not, you know, just like woo-woo speculation. Like, we got really good science on this. And so, you know, we should, we should act accordingly. Uh, that doesn't mean give someone a pass. I think what it really does mean is we need to interrogate ourselves about why those terrible cases happen in the first place. Um, and then think about how we're going to, how we're going to treat someone, um, either punish them or, or help redeem them somehow as we go. Uh, because, to, to your point, we have this phenomenon of saying, well... We're going to, uh, we won't charge anybody as an adult unless they do something really bad. And so, so we're not judging whether someone should be tried as an adult or a juvenile based on their age or their development or whatever. It's whether they did something really bad. And, uh, and I don't know that that's the best metric for, for making that decision because the person who does the truly horrific thing, not stealing their boyfriend's cell phone, um, but killing someone, abusing someone, uh, may be like the sickest uh, or the least developed. And this isn't to say that I, I'm not, I'm not uh, of, a, of a mind to say that we have to give everybody therapy, I, although I Probably we should, <laughs> uh, but but that we have to understand all of the forces that go into this and not merely react out of rage or horror, uh, or or you know like the the deep emotional wail of a society when something happens. We really need to think about how that happens, how to stop it on the front end, and then how to more constructively respond to it after it happens, rather than uh, just you know having a hammer and seeing everything as a nail. Well, uh, we are actually out of time, but uh, really appreciate you taking the time. A uh, very interesting discussion. Thanks for sharing a little bit about yourself and your work. Well, thank you, David. I, I, I uh, said at the top that I'm a Southerner, so I can't say anything fast. Uh, so I know I talked a lot, but I do appreciate the opportunity. It's a pleasure to talk with you, and thank you for your, thank you for your good work. This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with Jeff Baker who's from uh, the Caruso School of Law at Pepperdine. 
This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.